Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. What do you say to your patients who have a borderline HbA1c result? Do you say you have pre-diabetes and if they don't mend their ways, they're likely to develop diabetes? Or do you explain that they have a risk factor for developing another risk factor? Often a more accurate de- uh, description, but perhaps a less compelling reason to switch from Frosties to shredded wheat. In today's episode, we hear from GP and academic Sam Finnegan on discussing the risks of non-diabetic hyperglycemia with patients. And we get a perspective on overdiagnosis from Seamus Omani, author of Can Medicine Be Cured? The Corruption of the Profession. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by um, Jenny and Navjoy as ever. Hi, uh, Jenny, how are you doing? Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And yeah, Navjoy too. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada, clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And just returned from dinner, we, we hear. And, and slightly late for the recording. Do you want to <laughs> confess? That- <laughs> just just had to have a post-dinner snooze, which, um, yeah, I'm, I was very late. I'm sorry. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> so, so um, yeah, we'll give you a nudge if, uh, if we need to um, during the recording. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be sufficiently entertaining. <laughs> okay. Don't worry. Okay, so... Today we're talking about one of my favourite topics, and I, I feel like I sort of go on about this all the time, or at least in our meetings we have when we work together. But um, you know, pre-diabetes or non-diabetic hyperglycemia. Um, what what are your thoughts on this? Do you do, do you comfortable with the label? Do you kind of like enjoy these consultations? Um, what do you think, Jenny? I mean, I so no, not comfortable with the label. Um, do I enjoy these consultations? Sometimes. Um, I think that this, what always interested me about prediabetes was the way that it is one of those classic examples of where if the lab value is just, you know, 0.1 or 0.2 below a certain line, then you don't even have this conversation. But if mm. the HbA1c is just just above the threshold then suddenly there's this whole new diagnosis and you need to have all this, you know, behavior change counseling. And obviously that's an exaggeration and not Mm. really how we tend to practice medicine, but it's one of those ways where if the lab value is a certain number, then Mm. it has so many follow-on implications, even if the actual physiology of the patient is not so different across that threshold. And um, and of course, in well, for most of the world, our definition of well, non-diabetic hyperglycemia is the term we're going to try and use today. But you know, pre-diabetes is well, six to six point four percent if you're using the old and easier terminology, or, or forty-two to forty-seven. But in, in the US, it's even lower, isn't it? Is, is that are you aware of that? The, the American Diabetes Association they set a threshold for of um, I think five point seven percent, which. Yeah, that's a change so. from that's a change from before. It used to be right around um, right around six point five, if memory serves. And 
um, from residency training days. And um, yeah, anywhere below that line. And we just wouldn't necessarily spend so much time on this conversation. Mm. I remember having a patient who would get serial tests and would sometimes be above the line and sometimes be below the line and sometimes be above the line and sometimes be below. Mm. And she was very concerned about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And of course, then I'm just thinking about to uh, James. Do you remember James McCormack was on the, the podcast a while ago and he, he did that paper for the BMJ about lab variation. We maybe won't touch mm-hmm. on that too much today, but yeah, a, a difference of 0.1 of HbA1c between one day and the next is actually just within sort of what you might expect uh, just from natural variation. So, yeah. Uh, and Navjoy, um, what, what's your take on this? And I guess for the BMJ, we so have a history of um, looking into things like uh, overdiagnosis and too much medicine, but do you think this is too much medicine? I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I think my initial... Um sort of thinking was like oh this seems like a really good idea to you know to test people and to have an awareness of people who might be at risk and it's an opportunity Mm -hmm. to have a conversation with someone about um any lifestyle um adjustments that they might be able to make but then once you kind of scratch the surface of that you know for the reasons that you've already spoken about the the kind of arbitrariness of it where do those cutoff values come from actually how many of people how many people who might fit a diagnosis of pre-diabetes go on to get it and what interventions can make a difference if you do if you do offer them at that stage and it kind of the whole thing kind of once you start questioning mm. it questioning it it does seem like a bit of a a bit of um you know not as robust as you might initially mm. think and definitely as you said at the BMJ we have this approach to too much medicine and we've published articles that are kind of trying to scratch below the surface of this all and and call into question a lot of the sort of received wisdom that we might have um about this to the point that um I remember Tom you were handling an article last year or maybe the year before um which I think when it was commissioned, was commissioned as pre-diabetes, but I think um, eventually, just because of all all of these issues that we're discussing, you you changed the name of it. We did, yeah, and I think which meant that nobody really read it. And now, if you Google pre-diabetes, <laughs> it doesn't appear. But <laughs> but we did the right thing. <laughs> it's called a borderline HbA1c result. Uh, yeah, so it's all about what happens if you get yeah. a result that is in a category that we might have called pre-diabetes, yeah. but actually. Um, it it it's yeah. it's uh, more about a borderline yeah. result. It doesn't necessarily mean yeah. labelling yeah. someone. I thought it was a good title in the end, but um, yeah, shame it didn't get the attention it might have done. Not the best for Google <laughs> yeah. SEO, but we did yeah. the right thing, as you said. <laughs> um, and actually, so the, the, we're going to hear from the one of the authors, the lead author from that paper, in a moment. Um, but I thought I'd just mention one other thing before before we do, and that was I remember at that time. Um, GPs, I think we're still incentivized for this, but we were being asked to refer lots of patients to the National Diabetes Prevention Program. Uh, oh. So, yeah, we were actually being paid per referral, I think, in 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 Lambeth, where I where I work. Uh, but the only criteria for this was your HbA1c result. Um, so I remember thinking, you know, we were referring some very sort of healthy, low risk patients, and oh. uh, and that, that sort of was where the article kind of idea or for us to commission it came from is surely we, we, we need to be a little bit more um, maybe intelligent or tailored towards how we talk about this. 
Tom and Navjoy, I'm curious. When you see patients who, by these definitions, would have prediabetes or a borderline HbA1c result, in your experience, how many do go on to develop diabetes? Does it match the low figure that you know we read about in this paper, or in your experience, is it much higher? Oh, I don't have, unfortunately, as a locum, I don't have that kind of longitudinal um, sort of follow-up for a lot of the patients that I work with. But certainly from thinking back from the ones, you know, where where I have been able to have that follow-up, it's definitely not all of them. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it's not even kind of half of the patients Mm. that I've seen. You know, it's, um, it's a much sort of lower hit rate than you might expect from the... Um, I don't know the the education that we get and maybe that means that the things we're doing are working Um, but I I think there's probably reason to be kind of more circumspect about it and I mean also we don't um, you know thinking about other risk factors that we look out for in primary care like blood pressure or um, a cholesterol we don't treat those in the same way we usually put those in context of the whole the whole patient and thinking about other risk factors that might be present so it's it's odd actually how um just one single blood test result or two or whatever can can have such a profound um, impact. I think that's a good point to go to this interview, actually. So that's why I contacted Sam Finnegan about, the, the GP and co-author of this article, about you know, can we have a talk about you know, what do those consultations look like for you and how, how might we sort of think about those consultations or plan them? Uh, and yeah, came out with some really useful tips. So um, shall we have a listen? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, And that's coming up after this from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now let's go back to me talking to Sam Finnegan. Hi, yes, so I'm Sam Finnegan. I'm a, uh, a GP in Sutton Coalfield for half the time. Then I spend the rest of my time uh, as an academic at the University of Birmingham, involved in uh, teaching and researching um, around the topic of shared decision making. I suppose what it comes down to is the fact that um, what we're talking about here is risk, and risk is a difficult thing to communicate um, and for people to understand. 
And what we're trying to achieve is behavioral change uh, to reduce risk. And again, that's a really difficult thing to, to understand. Yeah. And I think one thing that struck me was that, I guess, if before I was working on the articles, I, you know, so on, on this side at the BMJ, you know, if you'd have asked me, what do I think that somebody's risk of developing diabetes would be with a borderline HbA1c result? I reckon I probably didn't really know. Uh, I'd probably no. just say it's it's high, you know, and, and the the conventional wisdom or whatever of, of our practice is that we tell people you're at high risk of developing diabetes and, you know, off you go. Yeah. But it, it's and, actually, and it can high, be low. What, yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, what does high risk mean? And low risk. Mm. Using these subjective terms is very difficult because one person's high risk might be 2%, another person's high risk might be 60%. Mm. And so... Um, it comes back to this this terminology we use, and, and we're used to using pre-diabetes, um, but we're trying to shift away from that to non-diabetic hyperglycemia, which is not as easy to say, but is more accurate. Um, um, because pre-diabetes confers this um, inevitability to, mm. to, the, to the situation. So you have a high sugar levels, and it's only a matter of time until you develop mm. diabetes. Um, but that isn't necessarily true and actually there's growing evidence that a lot of people with uh, a raised HbA1c um, won't go on to develop diabetes mm. and we can estimate what the risk of someone going on to develop diabetes is using the tools such as qDiabetes and HbA1c is only one part of that. So in a, in a consultation then if I kind of challenge you a little bit here to imagine you've you've had like four DNAs you've done all your paperwork you know you're well fed and you've got plenty of time to talk to someone about about their borderline HbA1c result what where do you I mean obviously it depends doesn't it on so many factors but are there any kind of key points or places you you tend to take that consultation to ensure that you you get to that shared decision making outcome so my approach I tend to tend to start with by really making sure the patient understands that I haven't diagnosed them with anything they haven't got a disease um and they're not ill. Um, what we're talking about is a risk factor um, for developing diabetes. But actually, more broadly, we're talking about a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Because when we're talking about diabetes, why do we care about diabetes? Well, primarily we care about diabetes because it's a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, so I, I tend, to, if I had lots of time, what I'd like mm. to do really is focus on a, a thorough and holistic risk-based um, discussion about um, cardiovascular disease, of which developing diabetes is one factor. And the, the great thing about looking at it like that and considering someone's um, blood pressure and lipids as well in this conversation is um, it highlights the fact that we're not treating someone's numbers. It can be all too easy to focus on the numbers, the HbA1c, mm-hmm. the total cholesterol, the blood pressure. But when we start looking at things in the round, we start thinking about um, all the the things that we can do to reduce the risk of heart disease and stroke. And then we focus the conversation on the things that the patient can do, which are the most important things. Um, And then the things that we can add on as doctors, which are, you know, playing around the edges in terms of reducing um, blood pressure, lipids. And um, if someone does go on to develop diabetes, their sugar levels. so I kind of set the scene working mm. on that. And then 
if we're going to talk specifically about their HbA1c and the, and the, and the, the, the non-fasting, uh, some non-diabetic hyperglycemia that we've diagnosed them with, then um, to be honest with you, I, t- I tend not to formally calculate their risk, although perhaps that's something that mm. I would like to do if, if I had more time. But I would, I would try and give them an idea of how I would think they might, their chances of going on to develop diabetes. Um, and I do this using, you know, I've played around with the Q risk calculator, the, the Q diabetes calculator quite a bit. So I've got an idea of a ballpark mm. figure for people. Um, so um, I can I can give them a rough estimate, roughly, of, of, of where they're at. Um, and if they're at high risk, I would encourage them. Um, the lifestyle advice doesn't change, but what, what, what changes for me is how much I want to keep an eye on that, um, that mm-hmm. sugar levels. Because we're always going to encourage people to change their lifestyle and do what we can there. Um, and we've got the, the diabetes prevention program to, to help us with that. But what mm. we as doctors need to think about is how closely are we going to monitor this in order to um, identify those patients where we can start to intervene. That's, I think, the important question that I need to answer at the end of the consultation, as mm. well as communicating the risk-based um, information and lifestyle advice. So, and I think you you, you found a patient, in fact, for the, this article that had found this very helpful and and so i think sometimes these terms are really useful for people aren't they it's a, it's a a moment where you can use that in a positive way to make those changes maybe you wanted to make for, for a long time and and actually come out the other end in a much better place so i think mm. we're sometimes a bit negative about the labeling or the the um you know we're well, worried that we're doing harm by by this well, but we, we've all met those patients who've told us that, you know, this was a, a wake-up call for us. Mm-hmm. This was, um, you know, a real game-changer. And it's really, you feel good about that and you actually hold on to that. But what we're doing there is we're confirming our biases because the research tells us that scaring people into change doesn't mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Okay, It works for very few people, but in general, you can actually cause more harm than good. So that patient that comes and says, you know, the cardiologist told me if I don't sm- stop smoking, I'll die, and I never touched a cigarette again... It's a lovely story. It's a lovely anecdote, but actually, we're probably doing more harm than good trying to scare our change our mm. patients into behavioural change. Um, mm. So, it, it's a nice story we tell ourselves sometimes. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm sorry, Tom, it's not true. Oh no, not I didn't mean in a scary manner. Just more in, in the, no. the way that that you do that. Uh, and some, you know, would you even use the term pre-diabetes? And would you say and some people call this or find that term helpful as a way of focusing on 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 the lifestyle change? I, I, I do tend to tell people that it, it can be called pre-diabetes, not because um, I think it's necessarily helpful, but because I don't want people to be worried if someone else uses the term, you mm. know, oh, I notice you're a pre-diabetic or, or whatever, someone who's using more traditional terms because they might then come back to see me and say, you know, Dr. Bling, you didn't tell me I, I was going to get diabetes. And I'll say, well, well, then we have to start the conversation again. Um, so... And also non-diabetic hyperglycemia is just a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. And I, I tend to avoid the labels. I do just tend to talk about um, the, the risk factors. Um, it's a bit like the arguments about CKD and, and, and labelling that change in, in our blood results with with a, a, a disease. It's, it perhaps helps us in terms of our cognitive shortcuts and classifying people. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure how helpful it is to patients. What about that patient who 
maybe it's just where I work, but we have, seem to have a lot of people who've already made all the lifestyle changes that they can make. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, yeah, maybe you shouldn't request the HbA1c in the first place, but you can't just request to be told if this person has diabetes, you get a HbA1c result, whatever. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess you just play down that as, as, as a risk factor, do you? Or any, any kind of tips on your experience with, with those patients? Yeah, it's it's difficult when you come across patients who whose lifestyle there isn't a lot of room for improvement, um, and for those patients, I think I, I I encourage them to obviously look for places where they can change, but essentially say look, you're doing all the right things and carry on doing them. Um, just because there is a raised uh, sugar level at this moment, it doesn't mean that it's going to you know, there isn't that inevitability of progression to mm. diabetes. We, te- when, we, when we test for someone for HbA1c, it tends to be um, a, a thoughtless test, a routine test. We're not mm. asking necessarily a question. Um, we're just doing it because we're, we're maybe doing a cardiovascular risk assessment or a health check. Um, and we haven't taken that it's not my practice um maybe some brilliant gps are but haven't thought about well what's this person's individual risk before i do their hba1c Mm. if i do their hba1c is it really going to change anything uh, apart from potentially cause them anxiety and worry in which case shall i do it and and actually that's a really difficult long and thought consuming process time consuming process which i don't think is realistic to to Mm. do in primary care um but i wish it was um, I think each test we should do, we should really think about whether we need to do it, but um, mm. that's just not the reality of where we are. Yeah. At the minute. And I suppose another reality is that so much of, well, there's so much emphasis on uh, recall systems and trying to make mm. things more efficient. And I think one area that we found this is we, we've been encouraged to yeah, bring in recall systems for people who have non-diabetic hyperglycemia i'll try and yeah, use the proper yeah. term we've got um, we've got those pop-ups too yeah and 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 i don't know it's a natural tendency to say okay well let's send all those people a message saying you know these are these are the lifestyle changes you should make or you know to you know to, to just use the category rather than the individual and yeah. in an effort to to do things quickly and efficiently and we feel like we're doing something um but Mm. does it help people i don't know because what we do know about encouraging people to to uh, make lifestyle changes that it's it's not a one-size-fits-all um solution is it it has to be personalized um using if we're using motivational interviewing techniques to help people then we need to know what's going to work for that patient we need to know what that person's life is what um capacity they have for change what drivers what what things hold them back, whether it be um, culturally, socioeconomically, um, the other things that they have going on in their lives. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that a, um, we like to kid ourselves that just giving information is going to change things, but um, it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is a shame. Um, and I, I do worry about, so another issue here is those recall systems. And once we've identified someone with a raised HbA1c, then we're being um, incentivized to keep an eye on them, which makes a lot of sense because we don't want to, we want to identify those patients who go into the diabetic range, but it's not being done in any kind of um, an intelligent way. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's just everyone every year. 
Um, but we've already discussed the fact that some people have a very low risk of going on to develop diabetes and some people have a very high risk of going on to develop diabetes and be much more sensible to monitor those, to spend our time and resources monitoring those with a higher mm. risk mm. of going on to diabetes more closely and mm. those with a lower risk of going on to develop diabetes, you know, much less closely. Yeah. But again, that's but, not the but way. It's hard, harder to program a code to, to achieve that than it is just to run a search of well, everybody. I feel well, it feels to be like that's I, the issue sometimes. Perhaps, um, you know, we're very used now to dealing with lipids and risk. Um, so we don't we don't re recall people with high lipids to, to see if their lipids go above the threshold and then start treating them. Um, we could do a similar thing with diabetes. It wouldn't be a massive change in, in, mm. in uh, you know, it wouldn't be unfamiliar to us to do mm. to deal with risk rather than the, the numbers, but that's just not seemingly how we deal with diabetes. So that bit at the end there about um, mass texting people, I, I feel like we might have done that where, where we work is, you know, because we, we're being paid, you know, we can make some money out of this. And, we, and I'm sure we, we did send everyone a message, or even we were advised to send a message by those above us. Um, yeah, encouraging people to, to, to be referred to the National Diabetes Prevention Programme. I think then in our area, they then became swamped with referrals and then they had to change the um, inclusion criteria. <laughs> Seems entirely predictable, doesn't it? That uh, that would be a consequence of doing that. But Yeah, yeah. But do you want me, actually, whilst we were listening to that, I was just, look, I was just playing around on the Q Diabetes Risk Calculator because I, I feel like we we maybe ought to just give a couple of examples to show the, the range of risk, to put a bit of context onto it. Um, so I did, um, you can, you know, it's just like the Q risk thing where you put in people's name, and, you don't put their name, uh, you, <laughs> it's not that uh, granular, no, uh, you put in people's age, etc. So a, a 60 year old woman, white, um, HbA1c of 42 uh, and normal body mass index with no other risk factors, um, their 10 year risk of developing diabetes is about 4%. Um, but then I, um, the 60-year-old man, Indian, uh, smoker, family history of diabetes, uh, um, obese, with the same HbA1c result, 65% um, mm. risk of developing mm. diabetes. Um, and it feels a bit like the, the health checks we do here is that the sort of resource doesn't go to the, the highest risk person. It, it gets, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, we, I mean, that's kind of, in so many areas of what we do we're kind of um flooding the system with kind of people maybe who are at the the more well end of things and actually those people who could really do with the targeted mm -hmm. intervention um it may be at the expense of of, of those people um mm. being able to access services and this is to his point as well about how great it would be to stratify people by their risk of actually going on to develop diabetes in terms of targeting the interventions and even monitoring people, um, different strategies for kind of following the A1Cs. You know, um, in, in the Bronx where I used to practice, prediabetes was inevitably a pathway to diabetes. Like, it, like very few people who carried a diagnosis of prediabetes did not progress to the actual diagnosis. Um, mm. So, you know, these 
the the low risk of the first example that you gave here, Tom, was is surprising to me kind of innately. Um, but it really reflects, you know, if we could actually do a better job of of estimating that progression in practice and having that conversation, it, it would help us, um, yeah, use healthcare resources in a more targeted way. Mm. Yeah, I'm reminded a bit of um, our Susanna Sullivan interview where, you know, actually, I, I'm quite negative about this label and, and, and labels in general, but uh, it is a route to help to to getting some help to where it's needed even if it's not perfect yeah maybe yeah I, I mean I think the, the issue is is um you know just what we've been discussing is actually how good is that test that we're using and how good is the program that we're referring people mm. to and I always remember um when the diabetes prevention program in the UK was first announced, Trish Greenhouse, another friend of friend of the podcast, um, wrote a, a really good editorial, co-wrote a really good editorial with um, a colleague, uh, Eleanor Barry, about about the program and just saying that um, you know there are a lot of assumptions built in to um, the fact that this program might be successful, which is you know the first of which is that the this blood tests can accurately identify the people with the highest risk of developing diabetes but there are also a number of other assumptions as well that you know these behavior changes will be sustained that clinically important improvements in patient outcomes will follow and that the program is affordable and cost effective Um, and it also speaks you know they also make this bigger point that actually this kind of individual behavior change is probably not where our attention should be when it comes to diabetes we should be looking at you know also investing in the kind of broad population level um changes that Mm. that we need you know addressing things like physical activity and and um the quality of our diets Mm -hmm. um and that sort of thing that can be much more meaningful Mm -hmm. but if we are going to have a program then yes at the very least the program there should be some more discrimination not discrimination that's probably not a good word but at least something uh within the way that we refer to program the program that can um sort people by those who are at the most risk because i think there are varying estimates of the proportion of people with um the label pre-diabetes um who will go on to develop type 2 diabetes um i think Mm -hmm. i was just trying to look up a figure and the figures i've seen are anything from um, one in three, uh, one in four, uh, half, 75%. You know, there's a range of different mm-hmm. different figures around. <clears throat> and there's also a range of different things depending on what, um, you know, whether you use A1C, if you use an impaired, um, if someone's had an impaired glucose tolerance test, you know, there's all sorts of kind of nuance mm-hmm. in the mix yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but... I I couldn't agree with you more that we really need to look at, okay, it's one thing to think about identifying the population to even using whatever estimate we want to use to stratify their risk of progression to diabetes. But it's another thing to think about, well, what are we actually offering them and how effective is it? You know, and and we know everyone who sees patients understands how difficult behavior change can be making actual concrete lifestyle changes that make a difference um, is extremely hard. And, you know, I, I really appreciated that part of the conversation as well, which was about, you know, in some ways, um, the label can be useful to spur this kind of 
like life-changing moment of, oh, I didn't realize things were this bad and now I really have to intervene in a patient. But more often than not, those changes are impossible to make because the patients aren't actually in control of them. Um, You know, they can't help the fact that their neighborhood is dangerous or that there aren't any, um, um, you know, uh, comfortable places to move or exercise or because they have to work three jobs in order to support their family. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I couldn't agree more that what we actually need to be thinking about is the broader kind of structural changes in terms of promoting a healthier lifestyle for everybody. Mm. You mentioned the dangerous neighborhoods. Um, One of the people I did manage to refer to the National Diabetes Prevention Program. Um, I remember her telling me her experience of it afterwards. Um, She said it was sort of in the middle of winter, quite late at night in a a kind of not particularly safe part of the, the neighborhood. Uh, she said she was terrified and, and she was too scared to go back to the second session. So um, kind of, of it's sad, but uh, I know that wasn't the point you're making, Jay. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the the detail, isn't it? Which is the um, you know I don't think that would have been factored into the plans when they were coming up with it. But I mean, that you make a good point though about the you know. The impact it has on people's lives and whether it is going to the prevention program or whether that's in a part of town that they want to go to but more broadly about you know what this label means to people and what you know are they are we sort of signing people up to like years now of getting this retested and worrying about having um an mm. erroneous result sorry i'm doing air quotes um but you know uh it's it seems on the surface of it to be an idea, a good idea to, you know, identify people um, with pre-diabetes or a borderline raised HbA1c result. But for all the re- reasons we've discussed, and also for the reasons that um, Sam alluded to about whether, um, you know, scaring people into into behaviour change doesn't work. So, actually, what good is it doing? Yeah. Well, um, maybe that's the time to to move on to to the second part of the the, 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 the well to the second interview, um, which is with um, Seamus Omani, if I've pronounced that right. Um, because yeah, this moves moves on a bit to to overdiagnosis and you know where these labels kind of come from. Uh, and so yeah, should we hear a bit bit more about that? Is that? I see yeah, we're all interested in that. It's, it's, it's a fun topic, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so he's written a, a well a few books, um, but one is this one called "Can Medicine Be Cured: The Corruption of a Profession," which um, I think, is, yeah, exactly uh, enough to make you want to resign <laughs> if um, if you didn't already want to. I was going to uh, say this is why you read the book, right, Tom? Yeah, so this is part of my um, still part of my midlife. Um, a GP crisis, but sadly, a not midlife crisis because I've still got another like twenty odd years of GP to go, but. Uh, yes Um, so yes that's why I read the book and that's why I got in touch with him and uh, again it's just it's just interesting because I think there's these are things that we we have to feel in our practice don't we about some of the conditions that kind of come about or you read about and I'm I'm very skeptical of where where some of them come from so uh, he describes one example in in this interview coming up uh, and then the sort of ends on uh you know what we might do or how we might fight back about about this 
And that's coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners in the UK. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. And let's go back to that interview with Seamus. My name is um, Seamus O'Mahony. I worked for many years as a gastroenterologist and general physician. I'm also an author. Um, I've written three books. Um, the first is called The Way We Die Now, came out five years ago. Um, the second, Can Medicine Be Cured, came out in 2019. And my current book is called The Ministry of Bodies. And and your book, um, the Can Medicine Be Cured, is is quite a um, quite a read because it really um, it really go, goes for for some of the the vested interests in medicine and and the the, well, the corruption of the profession, isn't it? Is is a subtitle of the book. Um, and I, I thought we could start by touching on, on one of the chapters of that, which is about how to create or how to invent a, a, an illness. What can you talk us through that and, and the example, perhaps, that you gave in the book. Okay, so um, the example I used in the book is this um, new disease called uh, non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity. The history of its development um, struck me as a model of how new diseases are um essentially uh, constructed or indeed uh, invented. So um, the story with this began um, about 10 years ago when a bunch of uh, academics with an interest in celiac disease, academics from around the world, met at Heathrow. And they decided that they wanted to establish a new nomenclature for gluten sensitive conditions. So it wasn't just celiac disease, which affects about 1% of the adult population in Europe. So what they did was they gave this a formal designation, a consensus conference, uh, and they formally recognised this condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, interestingly, this consensus conference was sponsored by Dr. Shar. Uh, one of the leading manufacturers of gluten-free products. So a couple of years later, this group got together again in Salerno in Italy in 2000 and, 
2013, I think. And they came up with the next step, which is to establish diagnostic criteria uh, for the diagnosis of this new disease. So their first step was you recognize this as a new disease. The next step is you establish diagnostic criteria. Now, the important thing to remember here is that there's no validated biological marker. There is no blood test, there's no biopsy, okay? So they had to come up with um, symptom-related criteria. And their symptom-related criteria, criteria was, uh, was a two-step diagnostic approach. So you invited people uh, with any of 24 symptoms, you place these people on a gluten-free diet for six weeks. And if these patients had a 30% reduction in their symptom score for 50% of the time, they were recruited to the, the trial. Um, now, they then said, you take these people and you carry out what is called a double blind oral provocation test. Some people are given dummy capsules, some people are given capsules with gluten, and again you assess a symptom score um, and if there's a 30% reduction then this gives you a diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I should stress that they actually never carried out any of these tests themselves. They merely established that this is what we recommend knowing full well that even in specialised, highly specialised gastroenterology clinics wouldn't have the wherewithal to be doing this, let alone in primary care. And by the way, a couple of years after this, a group from Australia did carry out these tests on people who thought they were gluten sensitive and came up with no difference between the uh, gluten capsules and the dummy ca uh, capsules. But never mind. They established, uh, first of all, here is the disease. And second, uh, here is are the diagnostic criteria. And after this then, the all the gluten-free uh, food producers were putting this stuff up on their website, um, saying, oh, here's this new condition. And by the way, it's six times more common than celiac disease. So if you say celiac disease affects somewhere between 1% and 2% of the adult population, then you can say this condition then affects somewhere between 6 and 12%. So you've got of the entire population. So you've got millions and millions and millions of people that could conceivably be diagnosed with this, what I would regard as a completely bogus um, disease. What would you say to the person, though, who very much experiences a benefit to their, their, their symptoms when they have a gluten-free diet. I mean, it's, this is something we see all the, all the time and people very much feel that this is real for, for all the money that was involved and it all very, sounds very shady and everything else. But, you know, to, to a, a person who's who's feeling the benefits of their gluten-free diet, um, you know, surely that's irrelevant to them. I, what I used to say in my clinics as well, you know, what I presume most doctors would have been saying was, well, if you feel better, by all means, do it. But on the other hand, there's wider issues. Gluten-free produce is, is dramatically more expensive than, you know, a normal uh, uh, weekly food bill. There's also some evidence. Uh, there was a good paper in the BMJ a few years ago, which showed that, if you, that people who are uh, taking a gluten-free diet unnecessarily 
place themselves at a higher risk of type 2 diabetes and ischemic heart disease because they're not consuming things like whole grain wheat and various other sources of fiber so gluten-free diet is not you know we always regard as well it's harmless you know if god you know if you're feeling better on you go you know who am i to stop you so i would make those points i would make those points but and and just moving on then to um a couple of other points because um well, well, one is that we, we were talking earlier, of course, and uh, it's not just about creating a new disease, but sometimes it's more expanding the definition of a disease is, is either a trick, if you like, or, or depending on how you look at it, either a trick or something that's very useful to, to society. Yeah, um, so there's a whole bunch of diseases that um, have been expanded in terms of the diagnostic criteria. Um, Examples would be hypertension, gestational diabetes, chronic kidney disease, hypercholesterolemia, osteoporosis. Um, So just taking hypertension as an example, some years ago, the American Heart Association lowered the threshold for diagnosis from um, a blood pressure of 140 over 90, which was the old teaching, down to 130 over 80. And this would have increased in America alone the number of adults with hypertension from about a third of the population to just less than half. And similarly, uh, the uh, nephrologists uh, produced guidelines um, for diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, which would have made one in eight adults um, suffering from chronic kidney uh, disease. Uh, they they used a threshold of a glomerular filtration rate of less than 60. Now, what I wasn't aware of was that um, people in primary care, doctors in primary care, have started to rebel against this. I wasn't aware until I looked this up, but um, the American Association of Family Physicians rejected the American Heart Association's change to the diagnostic criteria for hypertension. They said no. And the same happened in Australia. The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners rejected the new guidelines on uh, gestational diabetes. So there is a bit of a revolt beginning uh, in primary care against these sort of ex-cathedra consensus documents handed down by specialist uh, societies. So there's that ex- example of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and you know, I guess he's painting a picture there of of a sort of industry-funded um, development of, of of the diagnostic criteria, and and for those being, again, I think the implication was you know deliberately difficult to to actually achieve in 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 in, in practice. Um, yeah, I just, I guess, thinking, thinking, listening to it back, just again, that question that I put to him was, it, this does seem to be such a common thing. It's just really hard to square that with with this being completely invented. But uh, yeah, what do you think? Was anyone gonna say anything controversial about uh, <laughs> uh, gluten intolerance? 
I'm not going to say anything controversial, <clears throat> but I tend to fall very much in the camp of, well, if you feel better, it's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's definitely my MO, my kind of <laughs> general approach to things. I'm like, sweet, not my problem. You're doing, you know, yeah. your self-support, your self-care. That's great. Um, and I, I do know people who, you know, have not been formally diagnosed with celiac disease um, and who have just found that they feel yeah. better on a gluten-free diet. And, you know, I think Seamus's point about that is a good one, though, just in terms of the potential harmful effects of following a diet if it's not for a, like, mm. kind of uh, clinically recognized intolerance. But on the other hand, yeah. you know, I don't know. I just think that if we're relying on lab tests and kind of heightened TTG values, then we're end up then we're kind of treating the numbers and not the patient. Isn't mm. isn't what matters that the patient feels better? And as long as we explain mm. that there could be risks, or it's still important to pay attention to the amount of fiber or fruits and vegetables you get in your diet, then yeah. I, guess I guess isn't that enough? I guess yeah. One alternative explanation is that this is so culturally medi- mediated. It's one of those narratives within our Western culture about um, gluten and and you know otherwise or heightened or amplified symptoms that we might normally get and i i guess i i see so many people patients who um who who get such severe symptoms with with any gluten despite not having celiac disease um i just always feel a bit perplexed by the whole thing mm. yeah i mean it's 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 hard isn't it to know uh, what the answer is um there and, and what's going on I mean I think I do think it comes back to the sort of discussion that we were having in that episode with um Suzanne that in medicine we don't we don't there are a lot of things that we don't have the answer for and there are a lot of these mm. kind of unknown or gray areas but I will say that you know um industry uh I, I think for the most part you know when people come together to draw these kind of consensus guidelines they're being led by by the good of the patient but I will also say that there is um a precedent for industry kind of setting the setting the landscape or the scene um where you know I'm not thinking so much for gluten sensitivity, but more for things like, I don't know, like low testosterone, for example, where there's this work beforehand to kind of establish this as a thing, Mm. as a disease, as something that you need to pay attention to. And then that, you know, that sort of uh, scene setting happens and laying the groundwork. And then it's about kind of the tests that you can do to test for this. And then, oh, here's the treatment that, oh, by the way, we make that you can use to treat this thing. So I think there is definitely a precedence of um, these kind of disease entities or or at least kind of shifting the context within which we have these conversations that, that do tilt more towards an intervention yeah. or something that we can do something about. And not so much of what you're saying, Tom, that, you know, there's this sort of phenomenon that's happening that, that we don't necessarily have the explanation for. Yeah, I think there's another part of Seamus's book, which is about academia and we we talked a bit a bit about that off off that interview about um some of the um incentives i suppose with with an academia and uh uh yeah i can't remember the full detail of that to be honest but you know the, again there's a, there's a big history there and of of 
industry funding research because they know it, it gets them the outcomes that they want. Yeah, or or even just what are the research questions that are getting mm. funded in a setting where industry has a lot of the funding money? You know, how does that sort of shape the agenda of what's being discussed? Mm. Um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a is definitely something that we see within medicine for yeah. sure. What about uh, the, the second half of that there, which is, I suppose it's about guidelines and um, primary care or GPs inputs in guidelines. And I know there, there are GPs within the NICE guideline committees, but um, you know, I think that that's another thing that gets talked about from time to time, isn't it? That, that, that perhaps guidelines should be more GP and patient led rather than specialist led. Well, I was just about to say that, you know, it really made me think how challenging it is to set a guideline. Um, you kind of feel the weight of the world in terms of what, what it means for the number of people who will be diagnosed or who will be asked to start a medication or who will suddenly kind of be in a category that they weren't before. But it kind of loops back to the beginning of this conversation, which is that kind of the actual physiologic difference between a person who is just below the threshold for what we would consider normal compared to either having a risk factor or having an outright diagnosis compared to someone who's just slightly above that threshold is probably very minimal. Mm. Um, And so, I mean, obviously there has to be a line somewhere in terms of protecting people, but, you know, it's heartening to hear about kind of GP-led societies and organizations pushing back on guidelines that would result in higher levels of automatic diagnosis of people who we've managed for decades um, with, you know, who, who would suddenly be in a different risk category, but that doesn't match the kind of um, evidence of our experience. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I like your, your looping back there to, to the earlier part of the the podcast because that that means we can feel satisfied that we've we've looped back and <laughs> either <laughs> and, that or I just don't have original thoughts anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that means we could we could, we can end it there. No, uh, I mean I think the theme that keeps coming up for me throughout all of this and the kind of context in the UK and I know in a lot of places is a GP service that is overwhelmed at the moment is that we we have a real responsibility to kind of think about where are the things that we do going to make the most difference Mm. and if it's scratching you know just tinkering around the edges of someone you know with someone who's probably at very low risk of something um you know then that doesn't feel like we're delivering the best kind of care for our overall population of people and so what what this episode you know the interviews we've heard has have made me think is that we have a real kind of role to exactly that push back against the things that we think are just kind of you know like fiddling around in the margins Mm. that actually not doing the most that we can for our patients so well done for those gps who have who have pushed back um because there are so many things that you know we all encounter in our practice where we're like why am i doing this and couldn't my time be spent better doing something else Mm. And um, I feel like that we need to sort of harness that kind of thinking if we are to kind of get out um, of this kind of predicament of uh, overwork and overwhelm. 
I concur. Very nice place to, to leave it. Thank you. No, Joey. So thank you to Sam and Seamus for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, and thank you to Jenny. See you again next time. Thank you. See you next time. And Navjoy, see you uh, yeah, in a couple of weeks. Thank you. See you next time. Yeah, so we hope you're enjoying listening to Deep Breath In. Uh, if you are, uh, please uh, go onto your podcast app and rate us or tell, tell your colleagues about uh, some episodes. Uh, and if you've got any feedback or just want to get in touch, uh, please email practice at bmj.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode. Bye for now.